be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Part 2, Chapters 3 and 4. In the previous chapters, Captain Nemo led the Nautilus towards the island of Manar and proposed the idea of a shark hunt to Professor Aranax. In the following chapters, our adventurers are led on an underwater excursion to find pearls. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 3 A Pearl of Ten Millions The next morning, at four o'clock, I was awakened by the steward whom Captain Nemo had placed at my service. I rose hurriedly, dressed, and went into the saloon. Captain Nemo awaited me. Monsieur Aranax, said he, are you ready to start? I am ready. Then please, follow me. And my companions, Captain. They have been told and are waiting. Are we not to put our diver's dress on? asked I. Not yet. I have not allowed the Nautilus to come too near to this coast, and we are some distance from the Manar Bank. But the boat is ready, and will take us to the exact point of disembarking, which will save us a long way. It carries our diving apparatus, which we will put on when we begin our submarine journey. Captain Nemo conducted me to the central staircase, which led to the platform. Ned and Concier were already there, delighted at the idea of the pleasure party which was preparing. Five sailors from the Nautilus, with their oars, waited in the boat, which had been made fast against the side. 
the night was still dark. Layers of clouds covered the sky, allowing but few stars to be seen. I looked on the side where the land lay and saw nothing but a dark line enclosing three parts of the horizon from southwest to northwest. The Nautilus, having returned during the night up the western coast of Ceylon, was now west of the bay, or rather gulf, formed by the mainland and the island of Manar. There, under the dark waters, stretched the Pinadine Bank, an inexhaustible field of pearls, the length of which is more than twenty miles. Captain Nemo, Ned Land, Concierge and I took our places in the stern of the boat. The master went to the tiller. His four companions leaned on their oars. The painter was cast off, and we sheared off. The boat went towards the south. The oarsmen did not hurry. I noticed that their strokes, strong in the water, only followed each other every ten seconds, according to the method generally adopted in the Navy. Whilst the craft was running by its own velocity, the liquid drops stuck the dark depths of the waves crisply, like spats of melted lead. A little billow, spreading wide, gave a slight roll to the boat, and some samphire reeds flapped before it. We were silent. What was Captain Nemo thinking of? Perhaps of the land he was approaching, and which he found too near to him, contrary to the Canadian's opinion, who thought it too far off. As to Concierge, he was merely there from curiosity. About half past five, the first tints on the horizon showed the upper line of the coast more distinctly. Flat enough in the east, it rose a little to the south. Five miles still lay between us, and it was indistinct owing to the mist on the water. At six o'clock, it became suddenly daylight, with that rapidity peculiar to the tropical region, which know neither dawn nor twilight. The solar rays pierced the curtain of clouds, piled up on the eastern horizon, and the radiant orb rose rapidly. I saw land distinctly, with a few trees scattered here and there. The boat neared Manar Island, which was rounded to the south. Captain Nemo rose from his seat and watched the sea. At a sign from him, the anchor was dropped, but the chain scarcely ran, for it was little more than a yard deep 
and this spot was one of the highest points of the bank of the Pitadines. Here we are, Monsieur Aranax, said Captain Nemo. You see that enclosed bay? Here, in a month, will be assembled the numerous fishing boats of sea exporters, and these are the waters their divers will ransack so boldly. Happily, this bay is well situated for that kind of fishing. It is sheltered from the strongest winds. The sea is never very rough here, which makes it favorable for the divers' work. We will now put on our dresses and begin our walk. I did not answer, and, while watching the suspected waves, began with the help of the sailors to put on my heavy sea dress. Captain Nemo and my companions were also dressing. None of the Nautilus men were to accompany us on this new excursion. Soon we were enveloped to the throat in Indian rubber clothing. The air apparatus fixed to our backs by braces. As to the Rumkorf apparatus, there was no necessity for it. Before putting my head into the copper cap, I had asked the question of the captain. There would be useless, he replied. We are going at no great depths, and the solar rays will be enough to light our walk. Besides, it would not be prudent to carry the electric light in these waters. Its brilliancy might attract some of the dangerous inhabitants of the coast more inopportunely. As Captain Nemo pronounced these words, I turned to Concier and Ned Land. My two friends had already encased their heads in the metal cap, and they could neither hear nor answer. One last question remained to ask of Captain Nemo. And our arms, asked I. Our guns. Guns? What for? Do not mountaineers attack the bear with a dagger in their hand, and is not steel sure as in lead? Here is a strong blade. Put it in your belt, and we start. I looked at my companions. They were armed like us, and, more than that, Ned Land was brandishing an enormous harpoon, which he had placed in the boat before leaving the Nautilus. Then, following the captain's example, I allowed myself to be dressed in the heavy copper helmet, and our reservoirs of air were at once in activity. An instant after we were landed, one after the other, in about two yards of water upon an even sand. Captain Nemo made a sign with his hand, and we followed him by a gentle declivity till we disappeared under the waves. Over our feet, 
like coveys of snipe in a bog, rose shoals of fish of the genus Monopyrta, which have no other fins but their tail. I recognized the Javanese, a real serpent two and a half feet long, on a livid color underneath, and which might easily be mistaken for a conga eel if it were not for the golden stripes on its side. In the genus Stromatius, whose bodies are very flat and oval, I saw some of the most brilliant colors, carrying their dorsal fin like a scythe, an excellent eating fish, which, dried and pickled, is known by the name of carawade. Then some tranquibars, belonging to the genus Apsiphoroides, whose body is covered with a shell curious of eight longitudinal plates. The heightening sun lit the mass of waters more and more. The soil changed by degrees. To the fine sand succeeded a perfect causeway of boulders, covered with a carpet of mollusks and zoophytes. Amongst the specimens of these branches, I noticed some placenae with thin, unequal shells, a kind of ostration peculiar to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Some orange lucianae with rounded shells, rockfish three feet and a half long, which raised themselves under the waves like hands ready to seize one. There were also some panapires, slightly luminous, and lastly, oculines, like magnificent fans, forming one of the richest vegetations of these seas. In the midst of these living plants, and under the arbors of the hydrophytes, were layers of clumsy articulates, particularly some ranani whose carpace formed a slightly rounded triangle, and some horrible-looking Parthianopes. At about seven o'clock, we found ourselves at last surveying the oyster banks on which the pearl oysters are reproduced by millions. Captain Nemo pointed with his hand to the enormous heap of oysters and I could well understand that this mine was inexhaustible, for nature's creative power is far beyond man's instinct of destruction. Ned Land, faithful to his instinct, hastened to fill a net which he carried by his side with some of the finest specimens. But we could not stop. We must follow the captain who seemed to guide himself by paths known only to himself. The ground was sensibly rising, and sometimes, on holding up my arm, it was above the surface of the sea. Then the level of the bank would sink capriciously. Often we rounded high rocks 
scarped into pyramids. In their dark fractures, huge crustacei perched upon their high claws like some war machine watched us with fixed eyes, and under our feet crawled various kinds of analytes. At this moment, there opened before us a large grotto dug in a picturesque heap of rocks and carpeted with all the thick warp of the submarine flora. At first, it seemed very dark to me. The solar rays seemed to be extinguished by successive gradations, until its vague transparency became nothing more than drowned light. Captain Nemo entered. We followed. My eyes soon accustomed themselves to this relative state of darkness. I could distinguish the arches springing capriciously from natural pillars, standing broad upon their granite base like the heavy columns of Tuscan architecture. Why had our incomprehensible guide led us to the bottom of this submarine crypt? I was soon to know. After descending a rather sharp declivity, our feet trod the bottom of a kind of circular pit. There, Captain Nemo stopped, and with his hand indicated an object I had not yet perceived. It was an oyster of extraordinary dimensions, a gigantic tridacne, a goblet which could have contained a whole lake of holy water, a basin the breadth of which was more than two yards and a half, and consequently larger than ornamenting the saloon of the Nautilus. I approached this extraordinary mollusk. It adhered by its filaments to a table of granite, and there, isolated, it's developed itself in the calm waters of the grotto. I estimated the weight of this tridacne at 600 pounds. Such an oyster would contain 30 pounds of meat, and one must have the stomach of Gargantua to demolish some dozens of them. Captain Nemo was evidently acquainted with the existence of this bivalve, and seemed to have a particular motive in verifying the actual state of it. The shells were a little open. The captain came near and put his dagger between to prevent them from closing. Then, with his hand... He raised the membrane with its fringed edges, which formed a cloak for the creature. There, between the folded plaits, I saw a loose pearl, whose size equaled that of a coconut. 
its globular shape, perfect clearness, and admirable luster made it altogether a jewel of inestimable value. Carried away by my curiosity, I stretched out my hand to seize it, weigh it, touch it, but the captain stopped me, made a sign of refusal, and quickly withdrew his dagger, and the two shells closed suddenly. I then understood Captain Nemo's intentions. In leaving this pearl hidden in the mantle of the Tridacne, he was allowing it to grow slowly. Each year the secretion of the mollusk would add new concentric circles. I estimated its value at 500,000 pounds at least. After ten minutes, Captain Nemo stopped suddenly. I thought he had halted previously to returning. No, by a gesture, he bade us crouch beside him in a deep fracture of the rock. His hand pointed to one part of this liquid mass, which I watched attentively. About five yards from me, a shadow appeared and sank to the ground. The disquieting idea of sharks shot through my mind, but I was mistaken, and once again it was not a monster of the ocean that we had anything to do with. It was a man. A living man, an Indian, a fisherman, a poor devil who, I suppose, had come to glean before the harvest. I could see the bottom of his canoe anchored some feet above his head. He dived and went up successively. A stone held between his feet, cut in the shape of a sugar loaf, whilst a rope fastened him to his boat, helped him to descend more rapidly. This was all his apparatus. Reaching the bottom, about five yards deep, he went on his knees and filled his bag with oysters picked at random. Then he went up, emptied it, pulled up his stone, and began the operation once more, which lasted thirty seconds. The diver did not see us. The shadow of the rock hid us from sight. And how should this poor Indian ever dream that men, beings like himself, should be there under the water, watching his movements and losing no detail of the fishing? Several times he went up in this way, 
and dived again. He did not carry away more than ten at each plunge, for he was obliged to pull them from the bank to which they adhered by means of their strong biases. And how many of those oysters for which he risked his life had no pearl in them? I watched him closely. His manoeuvres were regular, and for the space of half an hour, no danger appeared to threaten him. I was beginning to accustom myself to the sight of this interesting fishing, when suddenly, as the Indian was on the ground, I saw him make a gesture of terror rise and make a spring to return to the surface of the sea. I understood his dread. A gigantic shadow appeared just above the unfortunate diver. It was a shark of enormous size advancing diagonally, his eyes on fire and his jaws open. I was mute with horror and unable to move. The voracious creature shot towards the Indian, who threw himself on one side to avoid the shark's fin, but not its tail, for it struck his chest and stretched him on the ground. This scene lasted but a few seconds. The shark returned, and, turning on his back, prepared himself for cutting the Indian in two. When I saw Captain Nemo rise suddenly, and then, dagger in hand, walk straight to the monster, ready to fight face to face with him. The very moment the shark was going to snap the unhappy fisherman in two, he perceived his new adversary, and, turning over, made straight towards him. I can still see Captain Nemo's position. Holding himself well together, he waited for the shark with admirable coolness, and, when it rushed at him, threw himself on one side with wonderful quickness, avoiding the shock and burying his dagger deep into its side. But it was not all over. A terrible combat ensued. The shark had seemed to roar, if I might say so. The blood rushed in torrents from its wound. The sea was dyed red, and through the opaque liquid I could distinguish nothing more. Nothing more until the moment when, like lightning, I saw the undaunted captain hanging on to one of the creature's fins, struggling, as it were, hand to hand with the monster, 
and dealing successive blows at his enemy, yet still unable to give a decisive one. The shark's struggles agitated the water with such fury that the rocking threatened to upset me. I wanted to go to the captain's assistance, but, nailed to the spot with horror, I could not stir. I saw the haggard eyes. I saw the different phases of the fight. The captain fell to the earth, upset by the enormous mass which leant upon him. The shark's jaws opened wide, like a pair of factory shears, and it would have been all over with the captain, but, quick as thought, harpoon in hand, Ned Land rushed towards the shark and struck it with its sharp point. The waves were impregnated with a mass of blood. They rocked under the shark's movements, which beat them with indescribable fury. Ned Land had not missed his aim. It was the monster's death rattle. Struck to the heart, it struggled in dreadful convulsions, the shock of which overthrew Concier. But Ned Land had disentangled the captain, who, getting up without any wound, went straight to the Indian, quickly cut the cord which held him to his stone, took him in his arms, and, with a sharp blow of his heel, mounted to the surface. We all three followed in a few seconds, saved by a miracle, and reached the fisherman's boat. Captain Nemo's first care was to recall the unfortunate man to life again. I did not think he could succeed. I hoped so, for the poor creature's immersion was not long but the blow from the shark's tail might have been his death blow. Happily, with the captain's and concierge's sharp friction, I saw consciousness return by degrees. He opened his eyes. What was his surprise, his terror even, at seeing four great copper heads leaning over him. And, above all, what must he have thought when Captain Nemo, drawing from his pocket of his dress a bag of pearls, placed it in his hand? This munificent charity from the man of the waters to the poor of Singalese was accepted with a trembling hand. His wandering eyes showed that he knew not what superhuman beings he owed both for his fortune and his life. 
at a sign from the captain, we regained the bank, and, following the road already traversed, came in about half an hour to the anchor which held the canoe of the Nautilus to the earth. Once on board, we each, with the help of the sailors, got rid of the heavy copper helmet. Captain Nemo's first word was to the Canadian. Thank you, Master Land, he said. It was in revenge, Captain, replied Ned Land. I owed you that. A ghastly smile passed across the captain's lips, and that was all. To the Nautilus, he said. The boat flew over the waves. Some minutes after, we met the shark's dead body floating. By the black marking of the extremity of its fins, I recognized the terrible Melanopertron of the Indian seas, of the species of shark so properly called. It was more than twenty-five feet long. Its enormous mouth occupied one-third of its body. It was an adult, as was known by its six rows of teeth placed in an isosceles triangle in the upper jaw. Whilst I was contemplating this inert mass, a dozen of these ferocious beasts appeared round the boat, and, without noticing us, threw themselves upon the dead body and fought with one another for the pieces. At half past eight, we were again on board the Nautilus. There, I reflected on the incidents which had taken place in our excursion to the Manor Bank. Two conclusions I must inevitably draw from it. One bearing upon the unparalleled courage of Captain Nemo. The other upon its devotion to a human being, a representative of that race from which he fled beneath the sea. Whatever he might say, this strange man had not yet succeeded in entirely crushing his heart. When I made this observation to him, he answered in a slightly moved tone, That Indian, sir, is an inhabitant of an oppressed country, and I am still, and shall be to my last breath, one of them. Chapter 4 The Red Sea In the course of the day of the 29th of January, the island of Ceylon disappeared under the horizon, and the Nautilus, at a speed of twenty miles an hour, 
slid into the labyrinth of canals which separate the Maldives from the Lacadives. It coasted even the island of Kiltan, a land originally coralline, discovered by Vasco da Gama in 1499, and one of the 19 principal islands of the Lacadive archipelago, situated between 10 degrees and 14 degrees, 30 feet north latitude, and 69 degrees, 50 feet, 72 inches east longitude. We had made 16,220 miles, or 7,500 French leagues, from our starting point in the Japanese seas. The next day, the 30th of January, when the Nautilus went to the surface of the ocean, there was no land in sight. Its course was north-northeast, in the direction of the Sea of Oman, between Arabia and the Indian Peninsula, which serves as an outlet to the Persian Gulf. It was evidently a block without any possible egress. Where was Captain Nemo taking us to? I could not say. This, however, did not satisfy the Canadian, who that day came to me asking where we were going. We are going to where our captain's fancy takes us, Master Ned. His fancy cannot take us far then, said the Canadian. The Persian Gulf has no outlet, and if we do go in, it will not be long before we are out again. Very well then, we will come out again, Master Land, and if, after the Persian Gulf, the Nautilus would like to visit the Red Sea, the Straits of Babel Mandeb are there to give us entrance. I need not tell you, sir, said Ned Land, that the Red Sea is as much closed as the Gulf, as the Isthmus of Suez is not yet cut, and, if it was, a boat as mysterious as ours would not risk itself in a canal cut with sluices. And again, the Red Sea is not the road to take us back to Europe. But I never said we were going back to Europe. What do you suppose, then? I suppose that after visiting the curious coasts of Arabia and Egypt, the Nautilus will go down the Indian Ocean again, perhaps to cross the channel of Mozambique, perhaps off the Massencaranus, so as to gain the Cape of Good Hope. And once at the Cape of Good Hope, asked the Canadian with peculiar emphasis, well, we shall penetrate into that Atlantic which we do not yet know. 
Ah, friend Ned, you are getting tired of this journey under the sea. You are surfeited with the incessantly varying spectacle of submarine wonders. For my part, I shall be sorry to see the end of a voyage which is given to so few men to make. For four days, till the 3rd of February, the Nautilus scoured the Sea of Amman, at various speeds and at various depths. It seemed to go at random, as if hesitating as to which road it should follow, but we never passed the Tropic of Cancer. In quitting this sea, we sighted Muscat for an instant one of the most important towns of the country of Oman. I admired its strange aspect, surrounded by black rocks upon which its white houses and forts stood in relief. I saw the rounded domes of its mosques, the elegant points of its minarets, its fresh and verdant terraces, but it was only a vision. The Nautilus soon sank under the waves of that part of the sea. We passed along the Arabian coast of Marah and Hadramat for a distance of six miles, its undulating line of mountains being occasionally relieved by some ancient ruin. The 5th of February we at last entered the Gulf of Aden, a perfect funnel introduced to the neck of Babel Mandeb, through which the Indian waters entered the Red Sea. The 6th of February, the Nautilus floated in sight of Aden, perched upon a promontory which a narrow isthmus joins to the mainland a kind of inaccessible Gibraltar, the fortifications of which were rebuilt by the English after taking possession in 1839. I caught a glimpse of the octagon minarets of this town, which was at one time the richest commercial magazine on the coast. I certainly thought that Captain Nemo, arrived at this point, would back out again, but I was mistaken, for he did no such thing, much to my surprise. The next day, the 7th of February, we entered the Straits of Babel Mandeb, the name of which, in the Arab tongue, means the Gate of Tears. To twenty miles in breadth, it is only thirty-two in length, and for the Nautilus, starting at full speed, the crossing was scarcely the work of an hour. But I saw nothing, not even the island of Perim, with which the British government has fortified the position of Aden. 
There were too many English or French steamers of the line of Suez to Bombay, Calcutta to Melbourne, and from Bourbon to Mauritius. Following this narrow passage, for the Nautilus to venture to show itself. So it remained prudently below. At last, about noon, we were in the waters of the Red Sea. I would not even seek to understand the caprice which had decided Captain Nemo upon entering the Gulf but I quite approved of the Nautilus entering it. Its speed was lessened. Sometimes it kept on the surface. Sometimes it dived to avoid a vessel. And thus, I was able to observe the upper and lower parts of this curious sea. The 8th of February, from the first dawn of day, Mocha came in sight, now a ruined town, whose walls would fall at a gunshot, yet which shelters here and there some verdant date trees, once an important city, containing six public markets and twenty-six mosques, and whose walls, defended by fourteen forts, formed a girdle of two miles in circumference. The Nautilus then approached the African shore, where the depth of the sea was greater. There, between two waters clear as crystal, through the open panels, we were allowed to contemplate the beautiful bushes of brilliant coral and the large blocks of rock clothed with a splendid fur of green variety sites and landscapes along these sandbanks and algae and fuji. What an indescribable spectacle, and what variety of sites and landscapes along these sandbanks and volcanic islands which bound the Libyan coast. But where these shrubs appeared in all their beauty was on the eastern coast, which the Nautilus soon gained. It was on the coast of Teama, for there not only did this display of zoophytes flourish beneath the level of the sea, but they also formed picturesque interlacings which unfolded themselves about sixty feet above the surface, more capricious but less highly coloured than those whose freshness was kept up by the vital power of the waters. What charming hours I passed thus at the window of the saloon. What new specimens of submarine flora and fauna did I admire under the brightness of the electric lanterns. The 9th of February, the Nautilus floated in the broadest part of the Red Sea, which is comprised between Sukin on the west coast 
and Comfida on the east coast, with a diameter of 90 miles. That day at noon, after the bearings were taken, Captain Nemo mounted the platform where I happened to be, and I was determined not to let him go down again without at least pressing him regarding his ulterior projects. As soon as he saw me, he approached and graciously offered me a cigar. Well, sir, does this Red Sea please you? Have you sufficiently observed the wonders it covers? Its fishes, its zoophytes, its paratiers of sponges, and its forests of coral. Did you catch a glimpse of the towns on its borders? Yes, Captain Nemo, I replied, and the Nautilus is wonderfully fitted for such a study. Ah, it is an intelligent boat. Yes, sir, intelligent and invulnerable. It fears neither the terrible tempests of the Red Sea, nor its currents, nor its sandbanks. Certainly, said I. This sea is quoted as one of the worst, and in the time of the ancients, if I am not mistaken, its reputation was detestable. Detestable, Monsieur Aranax. The Greek and Latin historians do not speak favorably of it, and Strabo says it is very dangerous during the eastern winds and in the rainy season. The Arabian Edrisi portrays it as under the name of the Gulf of Kolsum, and relates that vessels perished there in great numbers on the sandbanks, and that no one would risk sailing in the night. It is, he pretends, a sea subject to fearful hurricanes, strewn with inhospitable islands, and which offers nothing good either on its surface or in its depths. One may see, I replied, that these historians never sailed on board the Nautilus. Just so replied the captain, smiling. And in that respect, moderns are not more advanced than the ancients. It required many ages to find out the mechanical power of steam. Who knows if, in another hundred years, we may not see a second Nautilus. Progress is slow, Monsieur Aranax. It is true, I answered. Your boat is at least a century before its time, perhaps an era. What a misfortune that the secrets of such an invention should die with its inventor. Captain Nemo did not reply. After some minutes' silence, he continued. You are speaking of the opinions of ancient historians upon the dangerous navigation of the Red Sea. 
It is true, said I, but were not their fears exaggerated? Yes and no, Monsieur Arnax, replied Captain Nemo, who seemed to know the Red Sea by heart. That which is no longer dangerous for a modern vessel, well-rigged, strongly built, and master of its own course, thanks to obedient steam, offered all sorts of perils to the ships of the ancients. Picture to yourself those first navigators venturing in ships made of planks sewn with the cord of the palm tree, saturated with the grease of the sea dog, and covered with the powdered resin. They had not even instruments wherewith to take their bearings, and they went by guess, amongst currents of which they scarcely knew anything. Under such conditions, shipwrecks were, and must have been, numerous. But in our time, steamers running between Suez and the South Seas have nothing more to fear from the fury of this gulf, in spite of contrary trade winds. The captain and passengers do not prepare for their departure by offering proprietary sacrifices, and, on their return, they no longer go ornamented with wreaths and gilt fillets to thank the gods in their neighboring temple. I agree with you, said I, and steam seems to have killed all gratitude in the hearts of sailors. But, Captain, since you seem to have especially studied this sea, can you tell me the origin of its name? There exist several explanations on this subject, Monsieur Arnax. Would you like to know the opinion of the chronicler of the 14th century? Willingly. This fanciful writer pretends that its name was given to it after the passage of the Israelites, when Pharaoh perished in the waves which closed at the voice of Moses. A poet's explanation, Captain Nemo, I replied, but I cannot content myself with that. I ask you for your personal opinion. Here it is, Monsieur Aranax. According to my idea, we must see in this appellation of the Red Sea a translation of the Hebrew word Edom. And if the ancients gave it that name, it was on account of the peculiar color of its waters. But up to this time, I have seen nothing but transparent waves and without any particular color. Very likely, but as we advance to the bottom of the gulf, you will see this singular appearance. I remember seeing the Bay of Tor entirely red, like a sea of blood. And you attribute this color to the presence of microscopic seaweed? Yes. So, Captain Nemo, 
It is not the first time you have overrun the Red Sea on board the Nautilus. No, sir. As you spoke a while ago of the passage of the Israelites and of the catastrophe to the Egyptians, I will ask whether you have ever met with any traces under the water of this great historical fact. No, sir, and for good reason. What is it? It is at this spot where Moses and his people passed is now so blocked up with sand that the camels can barely base their legs sir. You can well understand that there would not be water enough for my Nautilus. And the spot? I asked. The spot is situated a little above the Isthmus of the Suez, in the arm which formerly made a deep estuary when the Red Sea extended to the salt lakes. Now, whether this passage were miraculous or not, the Israelites, nevertheless, crossed there to reach the Promised Land, and Pharaoh's army perished precisely on that spot, and I think that excavations made in the middle of the sand would bring to light a large number of arms and instruments of Egyptian origin. That is evident, I replied, and for the sake of archaeologists, let us hope that these excavations will be made sooner or later, when new towns are established on the Isthmus after the construction of the Suez Canal. A canal, however, very useless to a vessel like the Nautilus. Very likely, but useful to the whole world, said Captain Nemo. The ancients well understood the utility of communication between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean for their commercial affairs, but they did not think of digging a canal direct and took the Nile as an intermediate. Very probably, the canal which united the Nile to the Red Sea was begun by Sestris, if we may believe tradition. One thing is certain, that in the year 615 before Jesus Christ, Nekos undertook the work of an elementary canal to the waters of the Nile across the plain of Egypt, looking towards Arabia. It took four days to go up to this canal, and it was so wide that two triremes could go abreast. It was carried on by Darius, the son of Histaspes, and probably finished by Ptolemy II. Strabo saw it navigated, but it declined from the point of departure, near Babastes. To the Red Sea was so slight that it was only navigable for a few months in the year. This canal answered all commercial purposes to the age of Antonius, when it was abandoned and blocked up with sand. Restored by the order of Caliph Omar, it was definitely destroyed 
in 761 or 762 by Caliph al-Mansur, who wished to prevent the arrival of provisions to Muhammad ben Abdallah, who had revolted against him. During the expedition into Egypt, your General Bonaparte discovered traces of the works in the desert of Suez, and surprised by the tide, he nearly perished before regaining Adjorth, at the very place where Moses had encamped three thousand years before him. Well, Captain, what the ancients dared not undertake, this junction between the two seas, which will shorten the road from Cadiz to India, Monsieur Lesseps has succeeded in doing, and before long, he will have changed Africa into an immense island. Yes, Monsieur Arnax, you have the right to be proud of your countrymen. Such a man brings more honor to a nation than great captains. He began, like so many others, with disgust and rebuffs, but he has triumphed, for he has the genius of will, and it is sad to think that a work like that, which ought to have been an international work, and which would have sufficed to make a reign illustrous, should have succeeded by the energy of one man. All honor to Monsieur Lesseps. Yes, honor to the great citizen, I replied, surprised by the manner in which Captain Nemo had just spoken. Unfortunately, he continued, I cannot take you through the Suez Canal, but you will be able to see the long jetty of Port Said after tomorrow, when we shall be in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean? I exclaimed. Yes, sir. Does that astonish you? What astonishes me is to think that we shall be there the day after tomorrow. Indeed. Yes, Captain. Although by this time, I ought to have accustomed myself to being surprised at nothing since I have been on board your boat. But the cause of this surprise? Well, it is the fearful speed you will have to put on the Nautilus if the day after tomorrow she is to be in the Mediterranean having made the round of Africa and doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Who told you that she would make the round of Africa and double the Cape of Hope, sir? Well, unless the Nautilus sails on dry land and passes over the isthmus, or beneath it, Monsieur Arnax. Beneath it? Certainly, replied Captain Nemo quietly. A long time ago, nature made under this tongue of land what man has this day made of its surface. What? Such a passage exists? Yes, a subterranean passage 
which I have named the Arabian Tunnel. It takes us beneath Suez and opens into the Gulf of Pelusium. But this isthmus is composed of nothing but quicksand. To a certain depth, but at 55 yards only, there is a solid layer of rock. Did you discover this passage by chance? I asked, more and more surprised. Chance and reasoning, sir. And by reasoning even more than by chance. Not only does this passage exist, but I have profited by it several times. Without that, I should not have ventured this day into the impassable sea. I noticed that the Red Sea and in the Mediterranean there exists a certain number of fishes of a kind perfectly identical. Certain of the fact, I asked myself, was it possible that there was no communication between the two seas? If there was, the subterranean current must necessarily run from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean from the sole cause of difference of level. I caught a large number of fishes in the neighborhood of Suez. I passed a copper ring through their tails and threw them back into the sea. Some months later, on the coast of Syria, I caught some of my fish ornamented with the ring. Thus, Communication between the two was proved. I then sought for it with my Nautilus. I discovered it, ventured into it, and before long, sir, you too will have passed through my Arabian tunnel.